Hello and welcome to today's episode. So today, I am reading Neville Goddard's lecture titled On the Book of Revelation from 1963. So Neville tells his audience, It was asked by someone present, Would I please talk on the book of Revelation? And I, in an idle moment, said yes, because here is the end of the play. You see, the whole vast world is a play. The word Genesis means beginning, and apocalypse is the end, a complete unveiling of the purpose of the play. So I could no more explain Revelation in one hour than I could do the most impossible thing in this world. I wish I had asked you all to bring Bibles and simply ask me questions from the book, because you can't separate the last scene of a play from the play and give it any meaning. You can't possibly do it. I can only tell you that God conceived the play. He not only conceived it and wrote all the parts, but he built up or he built all the scenery, and God and God alone is playing all the parts. His name is I am. So you can say I am, that's God. He's playing that part that we call Mary or Jane or John or by some other name. He's playing that part. We are the incarnation of the tragedy and the glory of this divine play. We must not forget the glory and the tragedy. There's more of the glory than of the tragedy, but when we are in that tragic state, we tend to forget the glory. Now, to cover this would be impossible. But there are a few aspects of the great play that will stick into the mind of man. And I thought I would pick these out tonight. Then, when we come to the question period, then you can ask anything that I have forgotten or didn't have the time to cover. It's a play in seven acts, and each act has seven scenes. The first chapter is a prologue where it states the star of the play is named Jesus Christ. You'll find it in the seventh verse. Although the book itself is titled The Revelation of John, the first verse tells you whose revelation it really is, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yet all Bibles will give you a title and call it The Revelation of John. Yet the first verse tells you exactly whose revelation it is. In this prologue, the whole thing is set up, what God intends to do. The last chapter, the 22nd chapter, from the 6th through to the end, is, you may call it, an epilogue, where in the beginning, which is Genesis, he needed a son. In the end, there's no need for the son. We are light unto ourselves. In the beginning, there was an earth. In the end, there was a new earth. In the drama, there is tragedy and tears, horrible things. In the end, he wipes away all tears. So Revelation is a complete wiping away of the entire picture as it started in the beginning. Here, he speaks in Genesis of a serpent, which was the beginning of the exit from a state of bliss. And they speak of the serpent in Revelation. You might think, as I was taught to believe, it's some horrible monster that in some strange way came into God's picture, and it isn't. There's only one God in this world. Did you ever run as a child an obstacle race? Well, in Little Barbados, we had those. Our teachers would simply put a tarpaulin down, and it was a flat. It was as flat as this desk, and we had to run through this very tightly formed canvas where it was anchored on both sides. 
Then, when we came out, we were exhausted from getting through this very tight canvas. Then you were confronted with barrels, and you went through barrels. Then you jumped over some kind of obstruction, and then you climbed a greased pole. Then maybe it was more difficult. You had to catch the greased pig. And that is life, an obstacle race. The opponent in this is God, and the beginning, or and the being playing the part is God. And it's called, in the drama, the serpent. May I tell you from actual experience, one day you will see him, the opponent. The opponent is called a slimy, greasy, horrible being, a monster. And the hero of the play is also a serpent, but a winged serpent. A radiant winged serpent. While the opponent is the crooked serpent from the 27th chapter of the book of Isaiah. And here is a strange, monstrous being as it begins the 27th of Isaiah. But in Isaiah 27 we are told, We are called and redeemed one by one. So redemption is not something that takes place as the world has been taught to believe. Suddenly, where billions of us were suddenly brought to an end, no, the play is on and we are playing it. God is playing it. And we go through this horrible obstacle race. As Paul said in his final letter to Timothy, he said, The time for my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4.6 That's what everyone has to do. Fight the good fight. Finish the race. And finish it only by keeping the faith. Now, there are seven letters, which begins with the second chapter. No one can read these seven letters. It only takes two chapters to read them. They're short letters addressed to seven churches. Now, seven in the Hebraic tongue is spiritual perfection. So, when one has been brought to the limit, to the end, it's spiritual perfection. And here, he addresses seven churches, and every one, as you read it, he emphasizes. He doesn't criticize them. He praises them for what they've done. But there's something lacking, and the one thing lacking is repentance. Repent. I know you've done it. In the midst of the horrible world, you kept the faith alive to an extent, but you have not quite fulfilled the command to repent. Now, to repent means a radical change of mind toward what you see in the world. Here is the obstacle race. It's a horrible race that God set up to develop himself, to bring forth himself as you, as me, as every being in the world. And the only way we can go through it is to repent. To repent means a radical change of attitude toward life. It hasn't a thing to do with remorse, with regret. I see you and you do not look as I would like to look or as I would like you to look. And you in a conversation, you tell me things are not going well. I'm supposed I am supposed supposed to at the that very moment not or I am okay, this sentence doesn't make sense. Um I'm supposed to, at that very moment, not wait at that moment to change you in my mind's eye and to see you as you ought to be seen by yourself and by me and remain loyal to that changed aspect relative to you. But every church is told to repent. They're Catholic and what they have done. In the midst of the horror of the world, they have, in a way, remained loyal, but not good enough. The one thing that he told one church after the other, they must repent. 
teach the principle of repentance to the whole vast world. And the principle is this. When you see anything beginning with yourself and things are not as you would like them to be, assume that they are as they ought to be and dare to live in the assumption as though it were true, just as though it were true. And then you go through this strange obstacle race quicker, easier, by repentance, because in the end, the goal is God. When God takes himself through, he gives himself to us at the very end. It is God's purpose to give himself to you as though there were no other in the world, just God and you. And at the very end, when the gift is given, it's only you. You are he. It's a new world, a new kingdom. Everything is new. No need even for a son. You are light unto yourself. No need for anything you have here, not even for the sea. If there's need for a sea, you'll create a sea. For the whole vast world will be subject to your imaginative power. It's all imagination that's playing this wonderful, wonderful drama. Divine imagination creates it. Divine imagination is playing it. And when he comes out, your wonderful human imagination is divine imagination, creating everything, as it desires in this world. Now it comes after he tells these stories to the churches. There are seven churches, seven bowls, seven lampstands, seven seals that would seal the book, and seven all the way through. But so many people who I discuss the Bible with them, when it comes to revelation in their minds, as someone came to my door about two months ago and said to me, don't you know 144,000 will be saved? So that's in Revelation. It's not in any other part of the Bible. There are 66 books. That's in Revelation. Then came about two weeks ago a fine, wonderful-looking lad, about 26, 27 years old, and he had the Bible all marked, and there he was with all, the, all these marks. He started to open the book, the same concept of life, and he's going to prove to me something about the Bible, and he goes to Revelation about a beast, a beast that in 666, that's his number. This you will read in the 13th chapter, and here at the end of the 13th chapter, they speak of a beast, but you must read it carefully. He tells you this calls for wisdom, this calls for understanding. When you hear about this beast, for the number of the beast is a human number, it's the number of man. Well, I have heard all kinds of arguments about Nero was the man, Hitler was the man, Napoleon was the man. They can make it fit any name in this world. That Hitler represented a monstrous thing. No one denies that. That Stalin did. No one denies it. But this hasn't any reference whatsoever to any individual man in history. The beast that opposes me happens to be myself. I am opposed by myself, for the number is the number of a man. It's a human number. For man was created on the sixth day. <coughs> Excuse me. So the number 666 raised to the nth degree three sixes. And I am man. You, though you are female, you're man, you're generic man. Everyone is man. And we are opposed only by ourselves. We have to overcome our beliefs in this world, no matter what we believe in. 
that I am unwanted in the world, I've got to overcome it. Not by hitting the one who thinks that I think he opposes me. No, I must overcome that belief in myself that I am unwanted. I've got to feel I am the most wanted being in the world and not crush anyone who reflects my unwantedness. I will actually feel, in spite of that reflection, I am so wanted. When I look at the same being, he wants me and he reflects the whole vast world. So the beast is not Nero. And you can take the name, yes, in a certain way. You could write Nero out and give numerical values to the letters and make it come out 666. I've seen it done with the name Hitler. I've seen it done with the name Stalin. But that is not scripture. There were no prophesying the existence of Hitler or Stalin or any other being in the world. The only beast is man. And the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel reveals it to us. Daniel is the apocalypse of the Old Testament, and Revelation is the apocalypse of the New Testament. And in Daniel, when the tree is felled, they are told to strip off the leaves, cut off the branches, bring it down just to a root. And then, strangely enough, a tree, which is referred as it, take off its leaves, strip its branches. Suddenly, it's personified as man. Then we are told, take from him. It's a tree now, a tree of life. Take from him the mind of a man and give to him the mind of a beast until seven times passes over him. Verse 14, 6, or 14 and 16. Here we have seven again. Heat the furnaces seven times more than they are. More. All right, I'm going to read that again. Heat the furnaces seven times more than they are. Okay. This sentence doesn't make sense anyway. I'm going to read it the way it's written, but it doesn't make sense. Heat the furnace is seven times more than they are won't be. So there must be a misspelling. But anyway, because only pure gold must come out. Seven times more, so let seven times pass over him. It's a tree. Suddenly the tree becomes humanized, and it's man. Now, in this picture of the 666, I tell you it hasn't a thing to do with any being outside of yourself. The whole vast world is the animal that opposes you, but it's yourself. Because all that you behold, though it appears without, it is within, in your imagination. And this world of mortality only reflects that which is taking place within you. But if you think you are unwanted, all right, as long as you think you are unwanted, and you try to force the issue and break it down on the outside... You're fighting the most horrible tyrant in the world. You've got to assume that you are the most wanted being in the world, that your contribution to the world is so great. The whole vast world rushes to praise you. And when you live in this wonderful dream as though it were true, you produce whatever is necessary to make the whole world see it and praise you regardless of where you are today. That's how you overcome the beast. And may I tell you, from my own experience, you will see him. He will fill this room, may I tell you. He is the most horrible, slimy, loathsome thing that you have ever seen. You don't see yourself because they're in opposition. You, the being that is really the star of the drama, you are a winged serpent. A radiant winged serpent. But you don't see yourself. You see only the opposition. The opposition is the crooked serpent of the 27th chapter of Isaiah. You see him as a green, 
When I saw him, he was green. A greenish-yellow-green. I can't quite describe him, but a monster that would fill this room. There he came toward me, and I'm trying in some way to corral him, not to kill him, but to make him impotent. And I got him. One time, I got just the head into a vice that was smaller, seemingly, than the head. He couldn't dislodge it. But you don't kill him. He's always there to oppose you. He takes on all these forms, and he's always ready to once more dislodge that head, and one more, because he's slimy, he can pull it out. So you think you've got him for a while, and there he is. The vision is a true vision. I've had it. I have had the vision of this monstrous Leviathan, as told us in Scripture. Now, we go to the next chapter, the 14th chapter, another number. Did you not know, said this lady to me, only 144,000 will be saved? That's the 14th chapter, or chapter, right after the beast appears. In the 144,000, you are told, here, they are the perfect ones, redeemed from earth, redeemed from humanity. And they will sing a new song, and no one in the world can sing this song but the 144,000. No one can even know it. Only the 144,000 can sing it. And you think that 144,000 persons know 144,000 is the number of man. It's Aleph is 1, Daleth is 4, and Mam is 40. Plus 1, or 1 plus 4, plus 4 is 9. No matter how many zeros you add to it, it still remains 1 plus 4 plus 4, which is the number of Adam, which is 9. So the 144,000 tells you everyone in the world will be saved. None can be lost. I don't care what the world will tell you, no one can be lost. For God is playing all the parts. His opponent is himself. The opponent is a slimy, horrible, crooked monster. And he is the winged radiant serpent, the cherubim. So the 144,000 represents not 144,000 persons. That would be horrible. There are 3 billion people living in the world today. There may be 6 billion in another 20 years. There may be 20 billion in another 100 years. And 144,000 literally? No, don't believe it. This is all symbolism. Everyone will be saved. So here we are told, 144,000 sing the new song, and I'll tell you because I heard it. He's going to call your name when you are called, and they will be, uh, let's see, there's a word missing. Oh, I think it's, and they will be singing the most heavenly chorus that you have ever heard. It's a heavenly chorus, and the song, the new song, calling you by name. No no impersonal thing, saying he, she, or it, but your name, your eternal name. They'll call it and you'll know it. You'll feel yourself lifted up right through your skull. And you'll feel yourself in the most glorious world where there's no sun. You are the light unto yourself. There's no need of a sun. You radiate light from your own being. You are luminous. And you will come upon this most wonderful world, a world of imperfection, the blind, the lame, the halt, the withered. And as you come upon them, the chorus is sing, calling you by name, whatever your name is, if it's Jane, they will say Jane is risen. 
It will be simply a repetition of the same theme. Jane is risen. They don't change it, not even something other than that. But in the most marvelous way, that one little theme is made the most glorious thing you have ever heard. Jane is risen. Is multiplied in, the, in numberless ways of telling it. As the chorus exalts, and you are the being of whom they speak. You walk by the sea of imperfection, and as you walk by, they are all transformed into beauty. Those who are blind, they are made perfect. Those who are deaf, begin to hear. Those who have lost their arms, arms come out of nowhere. And the arms are returned, everything is returned, and everything is made perfect. And then you find you will understand the words and and those I will call for, the lame, the halt, and those whom I have afflicted, I redeem, Micah 4, 6. Read it. I'll call them all, and those whom I have afflicted. Haven't I afflicted in my own world? Haven't I fought with my shadow? Haven't I seen someone who I thought was my opponent and fought with them? And haven't I, in my own mind's eye, whittled him down to a smaller state so that I could take advantage of him? So I have whittled down everyone in my journey, from the beginning to the end. So all that I have lamed and maimed, and I have hurt, I'll call them all and redeem them. And the song of the 144,000, because no one knows the song but the 144,000, it's a new song. So forget the 144,000 persons, it means humanity. As you are lifted up, you join the 144,000. And you don't expand it to 144,001, it's still 144,000. And when all of us join that, we are still the 144,000. We know the new name, and the new name is every person's name as it's given. For you've called, for you're called by name. You are loved by God. You are not known as humanity, you are known singly, individually. I call you by name, as told us in the 48th chapter of Isaiah. Just for the name, and all of these are brought together, all that I have injured, all that I have hurt, I will now bring and redeem them. And in that same 48th of Isaiah, I will now call one by one. Everyone will be saved. At the very end of the chapter, he calls us one by one, but he tells us, he maimed us, he hurt us, everyone. And then in the end, we're all redeemed. So here, to take this fabulous book, I couldn't do it if I talked through night after night for several months. There are only 22 chapters, but I could take any one verse. For he tells us, to him that overcometh, I will let him sit with me on my throne. As I myself overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So here is a form of overcoming, but it gives us the clue in the very beginning. We overcome by repentance, and repentance is a radical change of attitude toward the world. Instead of thinking that he is opposing me, it's because I felt myself inferior. He rises in my world against me. I know it. I'm speaking from experience. When I came to this country unknown, uneducated, with no one to receive me, and I felt, being a stranger, that naturally the world stood against me, the world was against me. 
And then I began to have my visions. I began to appropriate them and put them into practice. So I can safely say and honestly say to you, I have never been barred. And I have no high school certificate. I have never been barred from any club in this land where I was invited. I have been invited to the most exclusive clubs as an honored guest from east to west. Never any bar, because I overcame the bar in myself. Had all the limitations in the world against me, uneducated, unknown, with no social, no intellectual, no financial background, but none. And then I overcame within myself. When I did, I met those who were members of these clubs, and they invited me as their honored guest. There was no question asked. I was simply welcomed as an honored guest. So Revelation tells us, to him that overcometh, I don't overcome the other by hitting the shadow and destroying the shadow. For I am ever casting the shadow. If I destroy the shadow at this moment and remain where I am, I cast a similar shadow one moment later. And so, I may kill John, who offends me. Well then, Peter will rise in, the, in my midst and reflect the same distortion in me that I hold of myself. So everyone has to simply change his own concept of self. As he changes the concept of himself, he changes the world in which he lives. And goes on overcoming. Overcoming and overcoming until he comes until he comes whose right it is to rule, and it's yourself. For God is playing the part. God's only name is I am. Can't you say I am? If you couldn't say I am, you wouldn't be here tonight. Before you say anything you say I am, that's God. And he's playing the part against himself. He sets up the opponent. And there are two serpents in the scripture. Now listen to this, or listen to this one at the end of the third chapter where the serpent appears in the book of Genesis. At the end of the third, he banishes man. He drives man out. And then he takes a cherubim with a flaming sword that moves in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. To guard the way, and the way is, I am the way. There's no other way. So he sets him up to guard the way to the tree of life. Who was it? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. There's no other way. The way to what? The way to everything in this world, but especially to the Father. No one in this world can come to the Father save they come through this way. And he tells you, he is the way. Know who he is? You are he. It's all hidden in you. And the day will come, it will begin, like a flower, begins to unfold. Unfold in the most wonderful series of mystical experiences. When it begins to unfold, you stand amazed at the beauty of the story. And may I tell you, you are told that the kingdom is taken by storm. It's true. When you move into it, it's called Zion. And I looked up, and behold, there was Zion and the Lamb, and around the Lamb, 144,000. And it's all here. It's all in your own wonderful skull. <coughs> Excuse me. And that's where he's buried. And may I tell you, when you go into it, having ascended that wonderful spine of yours, you will make the most tremendous effort to get out. You've never heard such a storm. But you caused the storm. So when we are told, and they take it by storm today, when you get in, you make every effort in the world. You've never heard such an earthquake. 
never heard such frightful, I would say, vibration that you cause. But you don't get out. There's no place to go. It's all within you. So the whole vast world, though it appears without, it is within, in your imagination, of which this world of mortality is but a shadow. That's Blake from Jerusalem, Plate 71. The Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, and it ends with the words, Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus is God. The world does not believe it, and Jesus is playing the part. When you say, I am, that's he. But he's individualized when you say, I am John, I am Peter, I am Ray, I am Mary. But it's the same Jesus. There's only Jesus in this world. There's nothing but Jesus. And Jesus is God. So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the end of the book, Come, Lord Jesus, come, let him awake within you. For he had to die to become you. So we are told, I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. I am he who is, who was, and who is to come. I am he who dies, but it is, is alive again. All this is revelation. I am he who died. I had to die. He had to die to become me, to make these that are dead alive, for I was dead. He created a whole vast world, God did. It existed only for him, not for itself, just like a picture exists for the artist, but not for itself. And then the artist falls in love with his picture. He so falls in love with this picture that he wants to make it alive for itself. And so, to do so, he has to become the picture, his sculpture. So he actually enters this dead thing called Neville, called you, by any name, and he enters us, and he lies down in the grave of the thing created. And then he starts his dream, dreaming that he's you. Then he sets up the opposition to bring forth the dreamer and to awaken the dreamer as you. But the dreamer is himself. That's God. And he's dreaming his you, and he brings it forth through opposition. For without opposition, not a thing could happen in this world. I couldn't leave the platform unless I was opposed. The car couldn't move unless opposed. The bird couldn't fly unless opposed. The plane couldn't take off unless opposed. The fish couldn't swim unless opposed. Everything in this world must be opposed in order to move. So God sets up that opposition. And then in me, the dead, he sets up the opposition and then he moves. And I'm frightened to death with all the things that scare us. But in the end, when he takes me through, he awakens and I am he. You are he. You and he are one. We are one. Then you'll know why that wonderful question... When it was asked, what is the greatest commandment in the world? And he answered, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord. The word translated, the Lord, is yad heh he, which really means I am. The word translated God is Elohim, it's plural. And then goes back to I am, our God, is one with I am. Here is a unity, a one, made up of many takes all of us to awake to be Jehovah. Everyone in this world will awake. But it takes all of us completely awake to form one Lord. So hear, O Israel, the Lord, 
that is Jehovah. I am, our Elohim, we are the Elohim, is one Jehovah. So all of us completely awake will be one Jehovah, that's God. No little thing left behind, just God. And what is next? As the poet said, be patient, be patient. Our playwright will show in some fifth act, let's see, but in some fifth act, what this wild drama means. What you and I completely awake, forming one body, will create tomorrow. We'll put all this fabulous world into kindergarten. Well, what we will do in our next creative power when we are awake will make it all look as though this was really kindergarten. And yet we pass through it as though it's the most horrible thing in the world. So take comfort. He who created all became you because he loved what he created when he created you. And he's buried in you. Now take the message of revelation and practice the art of repentance. You start to read the letters and the emphasis in each letter, save Philadelphia. Philadelphia means brotherly love. They so practiced brotherly love that he did not give to them this suggestion to repent. So the Philadelphians, which came in the sixth letter, which is man, so he didn't do it to the sixth. But he starts off Ephesus, or Ephesus, Ephesus, and he goes through, and each one he emphasizes the art of repentance. But when he comes to one who loves, he doesn't. If you fall in love with someone without trying to change it, just simply love. He allows that because God is love. And if you don't change him in your mind's eye and make him what you would like to see him in this world, that is permitted, that's permissible. So Philadelphia did not receive the suggestion to repent, for it means brotherly love, the city of brotherly love. All others had to repent. Now let us go into the silence. All right, so there we have Neville Goddard's lecture titled On the Book of Revelation from 1963. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. And I will see you guys next time for What is the Truth? Also from 1963. All right. Have a wonderful day. And I'll see you next time. All right. Bye now.